Boy, I am. I'm just overjoyed to be here with you guys. I'm thankful for the opportunity to come preach the word. Uh, I have enjoyed this weekend so much with you guys, and I have benefited from it in my own life uh, already. As even Julie and I were talking on some ways that we can minister to, to our family. Uh, neither of us come from believing families, so we can relate with you in a lot of different ways. If we're praying for our family. We're evangelizing our family. And uh, I hope that tonight the Word of God will encourage you to, to press on, and I hope that it will show you that the Scripture is sufficient. So as I was kind of... Uh, you know, preparing the message, trying to figure out well, what am I going to teach on? Because if you look through Scripture, and I'm supposed to be teaching on the sufficiency of Scripture in evangelism, it seems as if there is a word that is left out in the Bible. You will not find the word evangelism in your Bible. So that makes it pretty tough to teach on the sufficiency of Scripture and evangelism, if evangelism isn't found in Scripture, right? Well, we know that God's Word is sufficient, and we know that He hasn't left us without uh, direction on that. So while you don't find evangelism, you do find about 120 different times that people are evangelizing. They are gospelizing people. It's that verb form of they are preaching the good news to somebody. We see a lot of different examples in Acts, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 17, uh, Paul up on Mars Hill, you've got all those different things. They were good newsing people. What they were doing, they were taking the content of the gospel, the evangelion, and they were declaring it forth in the power of the Holy Spirit so that the mysteries of Christ would be proclaimed. So that's what we see them doing. And so that's one example of how we, how we can see from Scripture, how, how God's Word directs us on how we to do evangelism. And another way is that we, we see, te- we have texts. Is that me? I keep bumping it. Sorry, guys. That's annoying to you. But uh, the other way that we see it is that we observe passages that have these principles that we can draw out. We can, we can take them and we can apply them uh, to our lives, to our evangelism. And that's where we're going to head tonight. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. <laughs> so like, I'm just trying to test it out every time I do this. And it's just hit something. Okay, great. Well, I'll try not to. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Well, before we get into the text, there's, uh, is there anything I can do about that, Colin? Should I lower it? Does that help? How about that? Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Pick that up a little bit? All right, great. Before we get into the text, guys, there's something that we need to, to talk about real quick. Would you say it's, it's pretty safe to, to say and to admit that none of us really evangelize how we desire, do we? Neither, neither in quantity nor in quality. It's never uh, as much as we want to. It's never as good as we want to. And so we, we definitely have a lot of growing to do, and, and that's good. But, but if we're going to grow in, in, our, in our evangelism, then we need to get real. We really need to get honest with ourselves about our struggles and about the difficulties that we have in evangelism. How many of you guys have ever gone into a conversation with the intent to share the gospel and then left kicking yourself, trying to figure out how in the world did I just never say the word Jesus in that conversation? Right? Yeah. How did it never come off my lips? How many of you guys have ever planned to go out evangelize and maybe go share the gospel out on campus or something and have found every excuse that you possibly could to not go? I've got a test. Oh, you know, I'm really busy. Boy, there's things that I need to do. 
they won't believe anyways. You know, it's, it's really, there's no purpose for me to go out. Nobody's going to actually get saved. I, I don't want to share the gospel because that's my teacher. I, I mean, that might affect my grade. I'm not going to do a report on the gospel. That might affect my grade. No way. You want me to tell my dad? That's going to be really awkward. I'm not going to tell my dad, right? Who's been there? Yeah, for sure. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and actually burned the bridge that you were trying to build? Because your life was hypocritical to the message that you were preaching, wasn't it? You spoke harshly and abrasively as you were trying to talk about the compassion and mercy of Christ. Right? You ever been in a conversation and had no idea what you were going to say next? It's as if like there was concrete in your mouth. It was like, there's nothing coming out. Somebody cut the connection between the brain and the mouth. I have no idea what I'm supposed to say to whatever just happened. It seems as if all of our effort had gone, gone to waste in that. And so we've all experienced these things. And at the same time, we've all kind of gotten to that point where we feel as if our words that we're talking and that we're saying just fall flat. They don't really have any power, do they? It just kind of feels like our words don't have any power. And, and because of that, it's moved us. It's moved us to putting evangelism on the shelf, saving evangelism for the pastors and the pros, like Ray Comfort, guys like that that we watch on YouTube. We can buy his videos, all those things. Those guys can do evangelism. I'm not that gifted. Actually, I'm so introverted that I, God probably doesn't even want me to share the gospel. We come with all these different things. We say it for the pastors and for the pros. But friends, I, I want you to mark this and hear me out. Our timidity and our weakness in evangelism is it will be to our shame on the day of the Lord if we don't get a hold of it right now. It will be to our shame. And you know what? I say that trembling because I stand here and I tell you that and there's going to come a day where I have to give an account to the Lord and I'm going to, I'm going to have to give an account of whether or not I just lived out what I just told you. I do not want it to be to our shame and to God not getting the glory that He's worthy of when he returns, because we were so uh, busy worshiping our comfort and our ease and the way that people like us and what people think of us. Friends, don't let that happen. So if we're going to recover the power of God in our evangelism, we, we must seek to do it the way that God's prescribed it, i.e. in his word, with his word. In his word, with his word. Listen, it will not be better methods. It will not be better methods. It will be better, better men and women of God who are filled with the Holy Spirit and who are filled with the Word of God ready to proclaim it on the spot, who are ready to give it a defense, but who are ready to apply that grace and offer that free offer of grace to somebody. It's not going to be by, by better church programs. It's going to be by the people of God who, who with Scripture on their tongues and the love of Christ in their hearts, rubbing shoulders day to day with unbelievers who would never step foot in the church. That's how our evangelism is going to happen because we are going to be ready with the word of God to declare and proclaim with great joy and with great power. It will not be by studying how-to manuals and booklets on the four spiritual laws, but it's going to come from the heralds of the gospel who, who delight to take time away from all the things that, that they're busy doing with their life and see people come to Christ, investing in them, right? That's how the power of God in evangelism through his word, it's, it's not going to come in a way that's quick and easy, right? Because the sower sows the word. We gotta, you sow the seed and you let it go. 
you water and you let it grow. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. Because we're sowing the word, we, we have to see that as well. And listen, recovering the power of God in our evangelism is not going to come from a single retreat. It's not going to come from a semester of studying evangelism. Though, that is the perfect place to start. Praise God that we're here and that we're thinking about it, right? But that's not what's going to happen. It's going to need a lifetime of you and I coming to grips with what God has really said in his word about how holy he is, about how wickedly sinful we are, and the incredible love of Jesus Christ that he would come and die for sinners like you and I. Guilty, vile, and helpless were we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. It'll be a life long pursuit of coming to an understanding of that that is going to move you to evangelize and to reach the lost. Right? Amen. That's what it's going to need. That's what it's going to take. But tonight's a great place to start. Ultimately, what it's going to take is us hearing, heeding, and applying the all-sufficient word of God to our evangelism. That's what it's going to take. God says, is not my word like fire? Is not my word like fire, like a hammer? that shatters the rocks into pieces? Is it not God's word that is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword? Is it not? Right? That's what it is. It says it. God says it. He will use it. Friends, let the word of God dwell in you so richly that it will be fire in your bones so that when you're at the office, when you're in your classroom, when you're at home on Christmas break, you cannot help but preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is overflowing in you. It is fire shut up in your bones that you can't help but get out. It is the message of salvation for all who will believe, all who will call upon the name of the Lord. And that's where we see it in the Word of God. So the assignment given me tonight was to really take what we have learned and apply it. So we're going to go heavy application on uh, the sufficiency of Scripture and evangelism. Right? Brian laid a great, Pastor Brian laid a great foundation uh, Pastor Trav motivated us to bring Jesus into evangelism. Your breakout sessions, man, I love those. Uh, did you guys benefit from those? I thought that was incredible. Just how the Lord worked it out. I heard that all four were so different, yet met so many different needs. So praise God for answered prayer in that. But we are going to seek to put some legs on our doctrine tonight when it comes to how the sufficiency of Scripture relates to our evangelism. So I'm going to give you four ways that the, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture impacts our evangelism. Four ways the sufficiency of Scripture impacts our evangelism. It's basically to say, how does a proper understanding of this doctrine actually alter the way that we do personal evangelism? What you're going to see is that the Word informs our evangelism, and that it instructs our evangelism. And the Word is what we preach in our evangelism. And the Word is enough for our evangelism. So let's get into the text, because uh, I can't wait. Romans chapter 10. I'm not going to read through the whole thing just because we're, we're taking off a, a big chunk. We're going to go 1 through 17. Uh, but the first way that we see the sufficiency of Scripture impacting our evangelism is that it informs our evangelism. That is to say that since the Bible is inerrant, it's infallible, it's authoritative, it's sufficient, it informs our evangelism by, by revealing man's true need, his true condition apart from Christ, and his desperate need for a Savior. So Scripture informs us about the truths that we otherwise would probably neglect. And it tells us, uh, it helps us see the needs of people. So look at verse 1 with me in chapter 10. It says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. Just stop at verse 1. God's word informs us that people need salvation. 
So the context of here in Romans 10, right? Paul is, is Paul's writing to, to the Romans. We find that, that in 9 through 11, it's kind of this issue of like, the Gentiles are wondering, hey, what's up with Israel? Like, really, what's going on with them? Well, something going on. What's happening? And Paul tells them in 11, hey, God's not done with them. But before he does that, what does he do? Chapter 9, he says, hey, here's how God's sovereignty relates to their, uh, to their salvation. Here's how their responsibility relates to, to their salvation. And so we find him right here. He is, he is imploring, uh, he's telling the Romans that, that his desire, his longing, this yearning that he has, and his prayer is that, that, that the Jews would be saved. That the Jews would be saved. It, it, he's bleeding compassion for his kinsmen, right? It's just an intense love. And you see, if you flip the page back maybe to, to chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, this is what he just wrote in the chapter before. I'm telling the truth in Christ. And I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites. Right? So we see that Paul's desire, his prayer, was that that Israel would be happy and that they would be healthy and wise. No. That, they would, that, they would, uh, that their self-esteem would be sky high. No. Well, see, he knows their true need. Their real need is salvation. He knows what they need, and he says that it's salvation. They need to get rescued. The Jews need to get saved. That's what he's saying. God's impending wrath is, is upon them. And, and so you think of it just like a fireman who, who goes into a burning building, right? He knows what the people's needs, uh, needs are in there, right? It's not to grab the cat. It's not to grab the picture frames, though that would be great to have. Those people need to get out of the flames. They need to get out of the house. And Paul is saying the same thing. Hey, I know your true need. And what you need is the salvation from God. So this informs our evangelism by by causing us to really question and examine. Do we comprehend what people's real need is? Right? I can think back going to um, back in the locker room uh, at Bozeman when we played playing football there. You would go in, and uh, I would just get so sick and tired of hearing guys talk about what they were doing on Friday nights, what they did last Saturday night. And so part of me, I had to wrestle with this because I would go in there, and I'd have to remind myself, listen, they don't just need to stop using filthy language. They need to get washed in the blood of the Lamb. They don't just need to stop uh, doing those promiscuous things. And they need a heart change that says, I want to worship Jesus more than that sensual feeling. That's what they need. They didn't need to just put off bad language. They needed real heart change. Friends, that's what, that's what we need to consider. Do we know what people's real need is? Is that motivating our evangelism? To see people saved, right? Is that our desire? Is that our prayer? So let me ask you a question. How do we, how do we cultivate a desire to see the lost saved? How do, how do we bring that about in us so that, that we are like Paul, praying and having this longing and desiring to see them? I give you one. I would commit to praying for unbelievers. Commit to praying for unbelievers. What better way to to grow in love for somebody than to pray for them? Start with your family. Start with your family who you don't know. Pray for them. Start with those in your class, those at work, something like that. Start there, but commit to praying that they would be saved. Secondly, you could think back on your former way of life. We see Paul do that in 1 Timothy 1, right? He looks back and he just goes through, I was the, I'm the chief of sinners. But what's he say at the end? Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, wise, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
That's what, that's what his result of was thinking back on what his life was like. It was in the praise of God. One of the other ways I want to, you could, you could do this, help cultivate a desire. Scroll through your Facebook sometime instead of just looking for the next kind of high feeling of a two-minute clip. Go on there and stop on a, on a friend's page that you know isn't walking with Christ. Stop and think about what they just posted, why they posted it. Pray for that person. Use it for an eternal, uh, consider those things in light of eternity. Open up a newspaper every once in a while. Look at the obituaries. Maybe if you need to, check out a funeral. Sit in the back. Just be reminded of what death really brings. How impactful that is. You'll soon have a desire to go, say, uh, to go preach the gospel to the lost. But I'd say even, mo- even more so, develop a good doctrine of God's holiness and of his wrath and his justice and what hell really is. Study the word. See what it says. Help cultivate that desire. So God's word informs us that way. It also informs us that people often try to work for their salvation, don't they? People try to work for their salvation. Look at verses 2 and 3. If you flipped on the wrong page like me, you need to turn, <laughs> turn the page. You're reading a different text. So for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Right? The Israelites were, were certainly a zealous people. They, Paul knew that also well, didn't he? Galatians 1, he talks about how he was pretty zealous. Acts 22, he does the same thing. Maybe the more familiar verses in Philippians 3. Right? That's what he says. That if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Why? I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness, which is of the law, which is in the law, found blameless. Paul knew what it was like to be zealous for God, but to be wrong. He could still be zealous, but he was wrong. Right? He knew that zeal and sincerity didn't really matter if you were wrong. It's not according to truth. You guys think ISIS is, is sincere and zealous in what they do? Yeah, I think they are. I think they're pretty zealous. Is it according with truth? Absolutely not. And you see the impact of it. And you see the effects of it. So just because somebody's zealous doesn't mean it's right. They need to be in accordance with truth. And so the Israelites, they'd ignored, they disregarded God's way of, of obtaining righteousness by doing what? Trying to get it on their own. They tried to do it for themselves. And they were ultimately guilty of this fatal error, which we see all over the globe since the beginning of time, that man loves to try to work for his salvation. Man loves to try to get his knuckles bloody, get on his knees, get his hands calloused, working his way to heaven. You name any other religion, that's where it's at. Same thing with what these Jews were doing. And he's saying, listen, you can't do it. You can't do it. They had a flawed view of God's righteousness, which led to a flawed view of how holy they actually needed to be. They started looking, instead of vertically, they started looking at horizontal, horizontally. And I'm not, at least I'm not like that guy. Right, the Pharisee in the temple. Lord, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. Boy, I'm glad I'm not like him. Right, they started comparing themselves horizontally. And that's exactly why Paul goes into the next couple of verses. Verse 4 and 5. Look at those. It says, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that uh, the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. His point is that, that you can't keep the law. You need Jesus. People cannot keep the law. They need Jesus. 
If you want to get your righteousness from the law, what do you have to do? You have to keep the whole thing. Just like James 2 says, 2.10, right? You have to keep the whole thing if you're going to get it there. He says you can't do it. If you're going to get it from God, if you're going to get God's righteousness, you need to get it in Christ. He's the end of the law. He's the one that, that puts the kibosh on your efforts of trying to keep the law. And he perfectly applies his righteousness to us. That which man couldn't do, could never do, Jesus did for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. We know that. We know that. So how does this inform our evangelism? Uh, where, where, where are the legs on this? You said, I, Rick, you said, I'm going to have some legs on this doctrine. How does this inform our evangelism? It reminds us that righteousness, uh, works righteousness is a key issue. Right? People love to work for their salvation. And that is a key issue. When you go out sharing the gospel, you better know that the, that the tendency of the person that you're talking with is most likely that they're trying to work for their salvation. Right? We've all spoken with that person, haven't we? Everybody has almost spoken with that person. More so, most of us have probably been that person. I know I was. Working my way, just doing my good. That's all I needed to do. Most of us have been that person. And I cannot help, I cannot help at this time to think that we could have an evangelism, an evangelism retreat and to not call each and every one of us to examine ourselves and see if we're in the faith. Because the, the reality is, Maybe you didn't come here on your own. Maybe you, maybe you just showed up out of guilt. Maybe a friend asked you to come along. You really didn't want to come. Maybe your parents know that you need to go to church. They know you should probably be involved in cross life, so they want you to come. Friend, listen, if that is still you, if you're still working for your salvation, I want to ask you to stop. I want to ask you to stop and to come to Christ. I don't know where all of you are at, but I do want you to hear the call to come to Christ, even now. Even in a conference on evangelism, I'm calling you now. If you are still in your sins, if you know that you do not have a Savior, recognize that God has done something in order that you could receive forgiveness. That is Christ crucified and risen. So I'd encourage you and urge you and implore you, as Christ was pleading through me, to come to Christ. Come to faith in Christ. So, Keep going. Now, most of us sit here free, right? We've been freed from that sin, from, from trying to work for it. But most of the people that we evangelize here in America are going to be people who are trying to work for, for their righteousness, work for their salvation. Most people are holding to some form of twisted Christianity. Most of the people that, uh, if it's not that, most of the people that you guys are talking to is probably foreign exchange students that have no idea about Christianity, have a wrong view of it, or are just totally encompassed in their own religion. But we see, guys, what I'm telling you is that you need to go into every conversation, even if, it's, even if you know that they're an atheist, but, but think about the reality that man's tendency is to work. Man's tendency is to work. So think about that as you go in. So what's the best way to show people that that's what they're trusting in? What's the best way? What have you guys heard? What do you hold them up against? The law. You hold them up against the law of God. The, law, the purpose of the law of God is threefold. Listen, number one, it's to expose our sin. Number two, it's to point us to Jesus. Number three, it's to teach us as Christians how to live, how to keep living. Now I'm talking mostly about the Ten Commandments there, but morally. It's expose sin, point us to Jesus, teach us how to live as Christians. And so you want to expose their sin. So this is a question that I often ask. I actually just asked it to a guy the other day. And it put him on the spot. He had no answer for it. 
I remember talking with my brother-in-law, asked him the same question. This was the, the most awkward conversation I've ever had about Jesus. Uh, Julie and I sat in our kitchen. It was the most awkward conversation. And what had happened was when I asked this question. Who gets to determine what's good? Like, whose standard are we, are we going by? All of a sudden, that now puts everything in perspective. Because I can say, hey, you know what? I, I, I really don't think that rape's that bad. You say it's pretty bad. Who's right? You or me? I, I don't know. Well, is somebody else going to tell us? Who should tell us? God gets to tell us. And you know what God says that is his perfect standard? Oh, darn, I just blew it. You know what his standard is? <laughs> Matthew 5, 48. You need to be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. That's his standard. So you hold them up to the perfection of God and you show them that you fall way, way short, just like me, just like him, just like her. But let them know that they fall short. And at the same time, guys, don't leave them don't leave them with the law. Don't just leave them in that. Give them the grace of God, right? You wound. You preach a gospel that wounds and heals. Preach a gospel that wounds and heals. You pierce to the heart on the issues that you know they are trusting in. And that wounds it. But you don't leave them that way, do you? You apply the balm of grace, of mercy, forgiveness to Christ. Come to Christ. You give them that. And that's exactly where Paul begins to take it. In our second point, so our first one was that the word informs our evangelism. The sufficiency of scripture here now, the word instructs our evangelism. The word instructs our evangelism. So this would be point number two if you're taking notes. But the word is sufficient to tell us how to do evangelism and what to do. What to do in evangelism and how to do it. What to do in evangelism and how to do it. Right? Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he continues this discussion on righteousness. uh, And he begins to kind of get to the point of where you would ask the question, well, okay, if the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus, like, how do, how do I need to get it? How do, I, how do I actually apply that or appropriate it? Well, verses 5 through 7, we, we see Paul saying, this is how you don't get the righteousness of God. Look in verse 5. We already kind of looked at this, but it says, Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. You don't get the righteousness of God by keeping the law. It was never meant to do it, Right? Romans 5.20 says that it was, it was meant so that transgression would increase. So it doesn't work by the law. Secondly, it doesn't, it doesn't work by some incredible feats. It doesn't work by some heroic feats. Look in verses 6 and 7. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. And who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Right? It's not by some incredible feat. And just because Pastor Brian said this the other day, I definitely had it in my notes before he did. But it's the, fla- it's the flavor of our days. Somebody needs to get to heaven in order to come tell us that there's a heaven. Somebody needs to go to hell for 23 minutes and then come back and write a book so that we're all informed about hell. It's really interesting how this text even just splits it like that. I mean, in the wisdom of God's word. That is, that's a side note, but the point is, guys, you don't need to go anywhere to get it except to hear the message of Christ. This word, the, uh, Paul's quoting from, uh, Paul's quoting a, a Moses' message in Deuteronomy 30. And Moses is standing on the edge of the promised land before everybody goes in, right? He's not going to go in. Everybody else gets to. He says, you need to obey God. You need to obey God. This is not a hard commandment. You can either choose life or death, but you need to obey. And listen, don't go trying to get it up, up in heaven. Don't go over by the sea or under the sea. He says, the word is in your mouth. 
It's near you. It's in your mouth. He knew that the, that the Israelites, they, they had the word of God in their mouth as they were talking about it, as they were reading the law that they'd had, as they were even conversing with one another. They, they were speaking this message of salvation that was there. And Paul's saying, you don't need to go anywhere for it. It's clear. It's right there. It's even in your mouth. And Paul employs that same logic. He says, listen, you guys don't need to go to heaven. You don't need to go to hell. You don't need to do some heroic feat. You need to come to Christ. You need to come to Christ. And that's what he says in verse 8. So how do we appropriate the righteousness of God? It's by faith in Jesus. Look at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Listen, we are the true word of faith movement, right? We are the true word of faith movement. And they've totally hijacked our verse. This is ours to claim. That's kind of their language anyways, too. We claim that verse right there. We're the word of faith. We're the true word of faith movement. We claim that verse. But he's saying, listen, it's just faith in the gospel. That's how you get it. It's, it's clearly revealed. Paul's saying, hey, Israel, Israel had had it all. They, and he says it in, in uh, chapter 9, verse 4. They had, the, they had the adoption of sons. They had the covenant. They had the law. They had the temple services. They had all these things. But they missed it. They missed it. They missed the truth that they had in their very mouth. And he's saying the same thing for salvation for all who believe. You cannot miss it. You don't need to go anywhere. It's by faith in Christ. That's why he goes into verses 9 and 10 where he's saying that it's believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. Believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. Look at verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he kind of says it in a reverse order here in verse 10, a parallelism. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So what, what does it mean that, to believe in your heart uh, that Jesus was raised from the dead? What, is it, what does that mean? It means to accept the claims that Jesus is who he really is. It's to accept Christ for who he truly is. It encapsulates his, his character and his work. It's to know that Jesus is the almighty God, yet he is the word tabernacle. He's the word made flesh. He is indeed the king of kings, and yet he is the humble servant who came to seek and to save that which is lost. He is that lamb of, uh, lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that John talked about. And he is the very one that rose again on the third day, and he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of God, and he is returning to judge the living and the dead, and he will judge with a righteous judgment. To believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead is to accept the, the truth of who he was and what he did. And the reason that it results in righteousness is, is why. We talked about it earlier in our, in our breakout session. Because when you believe in Jesus, what do you get? You get his righteousness imputed to your account. You don't become righteous like Jesus. You get it to your account and then you grow in that. You grow in that. And that's what it's saying. You believe in your heart that he's raised from the dead. It results in righteousness. So then what about this issue with confessing with our mouths? How, how do we get around that, right? Well, really, it's not simply saying, I confess Jesus is Lord. That's not the point of it, right? It's not just a, a, a rote routine kind of thing like that. But it's, it's to live a life that reveals Jesus truly is your Lord. It's, it's the evidence of your faith. It's to lead a life that truly uh, knows that Jesus is is Lord. And the reason that it results in, in salvation, this is a little bit difficult in the text, but I'm not going to get into it a ton, but it's to show you that, that 
this confession is not the cause of your salvation. That's, that's believing upon Jesus. It's that faith appropriated that you become righteous. The salvation is talking about that you continue to progress because you, you realize that Jesus is Lord. It's the evidence of your life. So you could say that um, faith is, is really the conduit by which you obtain the gift of, of righteousness, salvation. Confession is by how you show it out, the evidence, the fruit of your life. And I think that Paul Washer does an excellent, excellent job of showing why that's, that's, the, that's the proper interpretation. He goes into the historical context. Maybe some of you guys have heard this, but I think this is phenomenal. I wish I could tell a story like he does, because if you're a good friend of mine, you know that I can't. Or if you're my wife, you're sitting back there getting really red right now if I'm going to try to start a story. Um, but he's talking about the historical context. Think about how this would have impacted the Romans then. Let's say you and I are in Rome right now, and we've got this little retreat here. And uh, before you know it, some Roman guards open that door, and they're going to come examine us and see what we're doing. So they've got three things that you're going to have to go through under their examination. Number one, you're going to have to to make an offering or a sacrifice, an invocation to the Roman gods. Second, you're going to have to say, Caesar is Lord. And third, you're going to have to deny that Jesus is truly God. That he is Lord. And so what they do is they, they let us all sit here. And uh, they come up behind us here. And uh, got all this stuff out. To offer up a sacrifice to the Roman gods. They're ready for you. And you've got a guard who's got a sword ready. For whatever your response is going to be. Would you come up and would you confess Jesus as Lord? Jesus Kyrios. Jesus Lord. You know what that results in? Death. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Because it shows that that was true faith. You had truly believed in your heart that that God had raised Jesus from the dead and that resulted in righteousness. And you had confessed that Jesus was Lord with your mouth to the point of salvation. That you did not deny Christ. You did not turn your back on Him. But you knew what was the truth. And so you see that that is, uh, that's that incredible reality of confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, believing in our hearts that he's raised from the dead. And Paul says that this this glorious salvation that would change us to the point of being willing to die on the spot for a message, more than a message, for a person, he says that is what is offered to anybody and everybody who wants it. Anybody and everybody who wants it. Look at verses 11 through 13. It says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen, salvation is to be offered to everybody. So check this out. Salvation is to be offered to the most heinous criminal, while at the same time it's to be offered to the most self-righteous pew-sitter. Right? 40 years in the pews, he needs the gospel. Just like that heinous criminal sitting in jail. This, uh, this, this message of salvation, this gospel, is to be offered to the drunkard on this side of your dorm room. It's offered to the, uh, to the promiscuous one over on this side. It's offered to the one over here who calls himself a Christian, but really isn't. You know it's not true in his life. That's to be offered to them. The gospel is to be offered to all. To the terrorist in the East to the liberal professor in the West. It's to be offered to the, to the man who, who just lost his daughter, who's sitting on the, on the off-ramp of the interstate in Bozeman, 
And he's mad at God. He's angry at God because he took, one of, because he took his daughter. He doesn't want to be with God. That was, a converse, that was a conversation I just had on the way. He's angry at God. That gospel, that healing balm of grace, knowing that God is a God of comfort and of peace, of salvation, that he can change that man's heart and give him new life to the point where he learns to trust and walk with God. That guy, he can hear the gospel. It's, not, it's no longer just the Jews. Paul says, no longer just Jew. There's no longer Jew, Greek, male, female. Galatians 3, all those things. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. It's to be preached regardless of your status, regardless of race. Why? Because whoever cries out to the living God for salvation, he will not be put to shame, will he? He won't be disappointed. How many of you guys have been walking with the Lord for a while and found yourself to be disappointed that you uh, have given up what you've given up? Man, sometimes I sit there and, not always, but I mean, there's times where I just am overwhelmed. Overwhelmed at the fact of what I have now that I would never have. Football glory? Yeah, right. Would have never had it. Would have been worthless and vain. True glory, seeing souls come to know Christ? Man, my treasure's in heaven, and I hope that that's where you're storing yours up as well. I hope that that's where you're storing yours up as well. All who call upon the Lord will be saved. Now, let me, hit, let me get the, the rubber onto the road here because this is where it's really going to happen. This is probably the most um, prominent spot where in our evangelism that we kind of, we just do not know what to do. And that's at the time of convert. Like, it's like when somebody wants to get saved. What will you do when somebody actually believes your message? They actually accept this. What, are you kidding me? What? I don't really know what to do. I, I'm really not sure what to do. We, we don't know what to do on this. So the most common way is we're told that, okay, you get them to, to respond. You get them to say, yeah, I believe in my heart. Jesus rose from the dead. You confess with your mouth. Yep, I confess with my mouth. Jesus is Lord. Great. Do you want to go to heaven? Yeah, I really want to go to heaven. It sounds great. I love what you're talking about. All right, well, why don't you pray this prayer with me? And this person prays a prayer while they follow along and just kind of go with it. And then you open your eyes and you say, all right, welcome to the family of God, brother. This is great. You go tell that person, hey, this guy just got saved. It's awesome. Yeah, he just got saved right in front of my eyes. You should write this in your Bible so that when you're maybe doubting someday, you can look back on it and, and everything will be all right because you'll remember, hey, that was the day that I got saved. That's the common way. But why do we do that? We do it because that's what we see in our churches. That's what we see our pastors doing. Friends, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing in church? And we do that because the church has become driven by results. Since when have decisions for Christ ever been more important than disciples of Christ? Have you ever thought that? Show me a spot in church history where people started keeping track of decisions for Christ as opposed to whether or not that person was on church on Sunday, whether or not that person came up and received communion. They could care less about decisions for Christ because if they, they, they said they had their faith, but their works never showed it. Right? Now listen, I want, I want to make sure that this is clear. I want to talk about the sinner's prayer just for a second. Number one, it is not inherently sinful. So don't hear me saying that. There's nothing inherently sinful about that. But it is very, very, very dangerous because it leads to a lot of false assurance and you get a lot of false conversion in the church and then you got a church that looks nothing like a church but looks exactly like those people who are on the outside of the church. And you can't really tell who's the flock, who's not. It leads to a whole lot of problems. You don't see it in Scripture. Jesus didn't offer the sinner's prayer. 
His apostles didn't. Church history records nothing like it. Because nobody, hear me out, nobody has ever been saved by a prayer. Do you know that? Nobody's ever been saved by a prayer. They're saved by faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on their behalf. It does not require that prayer to be saved. Yet there is that acknowledgement. It's not a certain set of words. It's, do you believe or not? (laughs) Have you repented or not? Let me know. In fact, you don't even have to let me know. Just show me with your life. Right? Friends, that's the common way that a lot of things are happening. But but what what should we do? how, How do we see that the sufficiency of Scripture impacts our evangelism, specifically at this point. Number one, it it ought to call us to encourage faith and repentance. Just keep encouraging them. Repent. You don't necessarily have to affirm it, do you? Just just be faithful. I think Joe had a great session today from what I heard on, hey, there's no need to make this decision right now. You certainly want to urge them, like, hey, our message of Jesus isn't, you can't just be passive about it, right? You can't be passive it does demand a response. But at the same time, it doesn't need it right now. So walk through it with them. Take them through the book of John. Take them through a gospel account. Introduce them to Christ. Give them your phone number. Let them call you. Set up a time to meet with them consistently. Go through verses about the gospel. Show them John 3.16 and have them explain it back to you. Talk about uh, Romans 5.8. 6-8. Go to verses that talk about Repentance. Like, show them what it means. Take them to John 3. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to have a new heart? Take them to the Scriptures, friends. Take them to the Scriptures. And therefore, show them that Scripture is sufficient in your evangelism in that point. Just as it's sufficient all the time. So it instructs our evangelism. Third point. Third point. Sufficiency of Scripture impacts our evangelism in that the Word is preached by people. The word is preached by people in evangelism. It's preached by people. Christians, we must be convinced that without our... This is going to sound totally... Don't kick me out of church. Without our, without our efforts in evangelism, nobody gets saved. Do you know that? It's kind of weird. Sounds like a pretty strong statement. But I'm going to show you in the text why we can say that. Look at verses 14 uh, through 15. Read with me. How then will they call on him... Whom they have not believed. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So what's the, let me just walk you through the progression. Some people can't call on the name of the Lord to get saved if they can't believe. And people can't believe on the name of the Lord if they never hear about who Jesus is or the message of salvation. And they can't hear about it unless somebody tells it to them, right? Nobody can tell it to them unless somebody is sent or goes to them. So you can work it backwards the same way. If nobody is sent, then nobody can preach. And if nobody can preach, then nobody can hear. And if nobody can hear, then nobody can believe upon Jesus. And if nobody can believe upon Jesus, they can't call out to, the, to God to save them. Therefore, you've got no salvation all the way back because nobody went to them with the gospel. Without people, the gospel is not preached. And, and if the gospel is not preached, then nobody receives salvation. So you might offer this rebuttal. Boy, you know, I'm really struggling. What about that person over in the desert who just has nobody? Well, I, I don't want to be crass or in, in this way, but if you care about that person getting the gospel so badly that you're so concerned right now, go buy a plane ticket and go over there and share the gospel with them. If that's your concern, then go do it. 
But, but you can't sit here and say that, uh, oh man, it's just, uh, they're, they're so innocent over there. They, they just, no, they need the gospel. They cannot believe unless somebody tells it to them. Whether it's handing them the Bible, explaining the Bible to them, proclaiming it through their mouth, they can't hear and believe unless somebody is sent to preach. But the same, you know, maybe another rebuttal would be, what about that guy, you know, who's sitting in his hotel room and uh, he's mad at God, he's angry at God, and, but he, he's really curious about that Bible that's like tucked underneath the, the little bedside stand. And so he picks it up and he reads it and he just opens it and all of a sudden he reads John 3.16 and he's like, oh my goodness, I'm saved. What about him? Well, let me ask you, how'd that Bible get there? How'd that Bible get into print? Oh man, somebody had to do that. So you see that, that there is, in a real sense, our responsibility in getting the word out. And that salvation doesn't happen without the proclamation of the word. Now, I realize this. This is really messing with our doctrine of the sovereignty of God in evangelism, isn't it? It's really, boy, Romans 9. I really want to go back to Romans 9. <laughs> I don't like Romans 10 as much because it's a lot of responsibility. Let me go back to the sovereignty of God. Let me explain this to you. God has sovereignly ordained it that he would use a human means of evangelism so people could be converted. Does that make sense? God has sovereignly ordained that we would be the means to preaching the gospel so that somebody would get converted. Let me use an example. It's kind of a little example, but let's say I want to dig a hole. I want to dig a hole. I have some options. I've got uh, my hands. I can just be like a little dog. I've got a shovel. I have a, a backhoe from Levi that I can call. So those are my three, three ways. Now I get my hole dug, I, I, and in my personal sovereignty, in my own personal authority, my choice, I chose a shovel. Did I dig a hole? Yes, I dug a hole. Didn't I have the power to use whatever means that I wanted to use in digging that hole? Correct, right? I was sovereign over that. Do you see how that translates? God will accomplish salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. It is not of man. So don't get, that, don't get that wrong. Salvation is of the Lord. God will save whom he will save. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He gives salvation. But listen, he's, he's chosen the means to be broken little shovels like you and me. That is the means by which he has sovereignly chosen to get it out. Could he have done it another way? You betcha. You could have done whatever he wanted. But he has chosen you and I as the means to accomplishing his will. His will. I hope that that helps you uh, really get in focus and get that, get that doctrine uh, balanced. Because it is God's sovereignty and yet it is our responsibility to go and to preach the gospel. And nobody will get saved unless we're preaching the gospel. So let me give you some real practical ways of how you can know that you are preaching the gospel. How you can stay engaged in proclaiming the word. I want to encourage you to start, because this is what's easy. We come to a retreat, and this is what you hear. You need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this more, you should do this, you need to go do this. And then what happens? We do nothing. None of it gets done. Because we're so burdened with, like, I need to go this way, I need to evangelize that guy downtown, I need to go over here. Guys, listen, put that on hold. Start where you are at right now. Look for the ways in your life that you can evangelize. If it's at work, if it's in the classroom, it's at home, all these different ways. Figure out the ways that you were, what you are doing right now, you can evangelize. I'd even start with your family. 
It's the closest unit, you know, and, and yet it's at the same time, it's most often most difficult, isn't it? Man, that is so, why is it so tough to tell our family? Have you ever thought of that? I don't know if I have the answer, but I just want to know why. Most likely it's because I love what my family thinks of me more than what my God thinks of me. It's probably the, probably the majority of my motives. But think about it. Take a long drive with your family. Talk to them about the gospel there. Ask them if they want to study through a book together. That's, the worst thing you'll get is no. Julie and I were talking about earlier, and I, I'm really considering thinking about uh, doing this. And I would say that this might happen in a, a relationship that um, maybe your family, somebody that you're, you're trying to witness to, that they really know you, they've seen your life, they know you're about Christ, and they're just kind of teetering. Have you ever thought of just going up to them? Maybe having a one-on-one time? I'm thinking of my dad as I'm saying this. Dad, will you come to Christ? Dad, will you believe on Jesus for salvation? You've seen how it's impacted my life. You watched it. You see my marriage. You see how I interact with my friends. You've been to church all the time. Dad, I implore, Dad, I'm pleading with you. Will you please come to Jesus? Will you turn from your sin and come to Christ? Why, why have we never thought to just ask the question? Just, just ask it in boldness, yet in faith. Just ask the question. We're afraid of it being so awkward. Yet can you, cons- is, is awkward more important than the eternal salvation of his soul? Like, is that really what we're weighing? Boy, I hope not. I hope not. Ask him. Ask him. Think about your holiday breaks. You've got spring break coming up. you have summer break, Christmas break, Thanksgiving break, all these different breaks. When you go home, maybe go play a pickup game of basketball and try to witness on the court. Go talk to some guys at the water fountain. Maybe get home and spend some time with your cousins or something. You're, I heard we had a first cousin. Uh, what was his name today? Ralph. Ralph, yeah. You need to go witness to Ralph. Maybe shooting some guns or something. I don't know. <laughs> Think about uh, another way is with your meal. Everybody's got to eat. So those of you who are at school, go grab somebody in the dorm. Take them, to the, take them to the cafeteria and seek to witness to them there. Maybe pick out a day of your schedule that says, hey, all my meals today... Maybe you start with one, maybe you say, hey, all my meals today, I'm going to try to find somebody who's sitting alone, and I'm, going to, I'm just going to get in a conversation with them and hopefully direct that conversation to, to things about Christ. Maybe if you have a job, think about doing that one day out of a week, going to the mall. Uh, it, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one thing. This message, putting this message together, has been incredible for my own evangelism, and I've had to make some, some commitments that maybe are not always easy and desirable for me. But uh, I've... Uh, I've, gone, I've started going to the mall and just buying a pretzel and finding somebody who's sitting alone and talking with them. And the other day, I ended up having this conversation with a guy named Larry, who's 76. He's an ex-Marine, ex-AFL, so that's an old-school NFL term, uh, football player, and he believes in aliens. So, I mean, a, a conversation. I mean, I know where he's at right now. And you know what he told me? I, that was a long conversation, I'll tell you what. I didn't accomplish a whole lot. But at the end of the conversation, he said, hey, will you come back and visit you, you seem like, don't. I'm not making me the hero. Don't do that. No, seriously. No, I'm not. I'm serious. I'm just trying to show you. Be creative. Do something. Do something well. Use your social media. Select a time where you can go on to campus and, and commit to that time. Don't show up with your routine spiel, but give them the truth. When you share your gospel, or when you share your testimony, share the gospel in it. Use verses that say, hey, man, I was... You know what? I was falling short of the glory of God when I was, man, I was so wretched. 
Think of, of Titus, that my, man, my life, you know what it looked like? Uh, I professed to know God, but by my deeds, I denied Him. But man, I, I started to study the Word, and, and God uh, made His Word come alive to me, and He saved me. It was by His grace through faith in Jesus, not by the works that I'd done, but it was His gift to me. See how I just shared the Gospel in like four sentences of, of, my, salvation, of my testimony? Use the Word in evangelism there. And I want to, just one last, because uh, before we move to our final point, there's a lot of you gals here who are either uh, wives and mothers now, or you're going to be wives and mothers now. And, and that <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen real soon. Do <laughs> you have any uh, biology majors in here? Maybe I should start reading textbooks more than... Uh, Someday down the road when you become a wife or a mother. That's got to be one of the most difficult uh, spots to, to, to really evangelize. So you're kind of hearing all this message. You're like, boy, I'm, I don't really know what to do with this. How do I? I'm home with my kids all day. Well, there's your first one. Evangelize your kid. Anybody uh, speak to the depravity of mankind? Tanner? Yeah, you got it. Evangel- your kid needs to come to, to, come to Christ. Evangelize them. Set up, set up dates where, where people can come over and have a play date. Go to the... Go to the park and try to be purposeful in evangelism at the park. Let your kids play together and just, hey, I'm going to go for the purpose more than for my kid to play. I'm going to go to try to witness to this person with me. So I just want to say that because that's one of the hardest places to get real intentional on evangelism. But there's plenty of ways that you guys can do it. And I know you be creative in doing it. So final point because I'm getting along here. So final point, the word is enough for our evangelism. The word's enough for our evangelism. There is no other means by which a person can come to receive Christ than by believing upon the message of the gospel from the word of God. Look at verses 16 and 17. This is the really summary and the the home run of Paul's text here. (coughs) However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Paul says the reality, you know, the reality is that all these Jews didn't, didn't receive salvation. And at the same time, that reminds us that not everybody's going to believe our message either, are they? That's right. Because you know what Paul says? Second Corinthians? To some, you're the aroma of life. To others, you're the aroma of death. And I hope that, if anything, that would encourage you to know that, man, your word's not going to return void. Some people are going to reject it, and you're going to be the aroma of death, and that's going to stand as testimony against them on the day of judgment. Yet to some, you are the aroma of life. You are the fragrance of the gospel. As you have, a, <laughs> I was thinking of like smelly feet. You have good feet. You know, you're bringing the good news. It's not, it's not, not that kind of fragrance, not that kind of aroma. But you are the aroma of life because you're bringing the message of salvation to them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The goal of it is for people to come to faith. It's not to win an argument. For people to come to faith. And the way, the means by which they do it, is by the word of Christ. The word, word, the word for word right there is rhema. Which usually means, not, not necessarily the written word so much, but the written word explained. The written word proclaimed, spoken forth, uttered forth, declared and preached. That's what he's saying. People need to hear the message of Christ preached. They need the gospel. They need the word proclaimed. Friends, I want to challenge you. You can use a cosmological argument to talk about the existence of God, but that won't save anybody. You can can use your testimony 
to, to talk about what God has done in your life. But that is not what saves somebody, is it? It's the word of Christ. It's the message of Christ. So, so don't get so wrapped up in winning an argument. Don't get so wrapped up in, in proving certain points that you totally and utterly leave out the only thing that they need, which is the gospel. They need the message of salvation, the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's the word that's preached and it won't return void. Why? Because you guys are studying that verse in 2 Corinthians 5, right? As though God was making an appeal through you. When you stand, you testify to somebody, you evangelize, you preach the gospel. It is as if Jesus was speaking to them. As you are declaring the word God. Now, I'm not saying that you become Jesus anyway. I'm saying that you are the means by which God is declaring forth. Right? As if he was appealing through your words. It's his word in your mouth, declare, that draws somebody to salvation by the power of his spirit. So let me close with this. Let me encourage you. 2 Timothy 2.9 The word of God is not imprisoned. It's not held captive. It's not imprisoned. It's not bound. It's unhindered. It's unhindered. Friends, the power of, of our evangelism, the power uh, in which we're going to recover in using the word in our evangelism, it's more, than, it's more than you can even grasp at the moment. Friends, use the Word. Go back to the Word. It is sufficient. It informs us. It instructs us. It's what we preach. And it's what saves people. So, I leave you with a charge, friends. Um, Let us carry out the task, the joyous task of the Great Commission. Let us do it with, with joy overflowing. Being compelled by the love of Christ to see sinners saved. Preaching compassion and mercy. Yet holding up the truth and the righteousness and the law of God. Friends, use the word. Have confidence in the all-sufficient word so that you might stand unashamed of the gospel, that we might stand unashamed of our Lord, and we just stand unashamed of his word. Amen. Ambassadors for Christ sent out as though God is making an appeal through us. What a great task. A great task. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and how it instructs us. And Lord, we, we need not much at the moment, Lord, simply to, to now put these things into practice. Lord, I pray that it would be a lifelong pursuit of knowing you, of understanding your word, and it would be a great, uh, just a great thing that you do in our lives, Lord, where you move us to have a desire to see sinners come to Christ. Lord, that you would put the word your word in our mouths, that we might declare forth the mysteries of Christ and the salvation that's offered in Him. Lord, help us to understand how Your Scripture is sufficient in evangelism. Lord, help us to apply it. Help us to stand unashamed in the power of Your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask all this in Your Son's name. Amen.